Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Wednesdays with Wesley. I'm Bob Kaler with the Holy Week edition of the podcast. We've been looking at the sermons of John Wesley, and I hope your Holy Week is going well. We're looking forward to a lot of different services this week, some of them back in person at Tri-Lakes United Methodist Church, where I serve. Uh, In fact, all of them back in person as well as online. We've added some additional services. This is usually my favorite week of the year, particularly the Christian year. And I look forward this year to having Easter again. Last year, we were online only for Easter. So we're looking forward to having people both indoors and we're also doing an outdoor service. It's supposed to be a beautiful Sunday in Colorado. Uh, about 70 degrees on Sunday, although it's snowing today, so we've got a lot more work to do (laughs) to get to that point. But I hope that you are having a good Holy Week, and as you listen to this, as you prepare, that you are having a powerful experience of following Christ to the cross and on to the resurrection. And so we're going to look at a sermon today by John Wesley that I think is relevant for this week. It's the sermon, Salvation by Faith. What does it mean for us to be saved? What has Christ actually done for us? And the operative mode around all that for Wesley, as always, and for most of us who are Protestants and Orthodox Christians, is grace. Now, the, the key thing to remember about this particular sermon is that John Wesley writes this sermon after the Aldersgate experience. The date on this sermon is June 11th, 1738. And if you remember, Aldersgate happens on May 24th, 1738, when John Wesley goes unwillingly to that society meeting in Aldersgate Street. He says, uh, where, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine, While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That's what Wesley writes in his journal. And a few days later, or, you know, a couple weeks later, he writes this sermon which really is the fruit of Aldersgate. The text he uses is Ephesians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And he preaches this sermon, another sermon, at St. Mary's in Oxford, which, of course, is the university church. He preaches there several times, and he's preaching before the university, and here he's going to really lay out um, the, the, the key parts of what he believes about grace. And in this sense, Wesley is very much in line with the Protestant reformers and is going to give us, though, some nuance and some additional understanding of what this grace really means. Because for Wesley, grace wasn't just a concept or a doctrine by which we were saved. Grace is also operational in our lives. It actually can transform us from the inside out, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's dive into this sermon a little bit more. Now, a little bit of background. Ken Collins gave this in a lecture, and I thought it was really helpful, that Wesley once claimed that he didn't understand justification by grace through faith before 1738. Albert Outler would say that was a hyperbolic statement by Wesley. Of course, 
having been educated in Oxford, been brought up in the Protestant tradition, he certainly intellectually understood justification by grace through faith. But there's a difference to an understanding that intellectually and understanding it in the heart, which is what we see happen on Aldersgate. And prior to that Aldersgate experience, Colin says Wesley was really influenced by two streams, both the, the Anglicanism stream of the 17th century. Wesley read Jeremy Taylor, uh, Exercises in Holy Living and Holy Dying. And uh, that 17th century Anglicanism really feared justification by faith because they feared it would breed a licentiousness, that if we really believe this doctrine of the fact that there's nothing we can do by grace, we are saved. There's nothing we can do. There would be a sense of, well, once I've been saved, now I can go do whatever I want. The very thing Paul talks about in Romans. And so Taylor would advocate for more belabored rounds of repentance. In other words, kind of saying, well, it can't be just that easy. There has to be more to it than that. But on the other hand, you had Wesley's influence by the Moravians, particularly Peter Burler, um, who said justification is a gift received by grace now. And so Wesley knew about this doctrine prior to 1738, but saw it as what Ken Collins calls a cooperant grace rather than a gift. It's, it's a way that we cooperate with God around that sense of grace. We have to respond to it in a particular way. But we see Wesley after Aldersgate, and particularly after spending three months in Germany with the Moravians, beginning to declare free grace. We read the sermon Free Grace last week, and we talked about the different operations of that grace. But Wesley begins to talk about this as a, a real offering of God. In fact, he goes and he proclaims this free grace to people in prison. He says in his journal on September 17, 1738, I began to declare in my own country the glad tidings of salvation, preaching three times and afterward expounding the Holy Scripture. The next day I went to the condemned felons in Newgate, that's prison, and offered them free salvation. So if you can imagine offering the free gift of salvation to people who have been condemned, uh, who, are, who are on the way to execution, in effect, and saying you can receive this free gift of grace now. It's not something that you have to wait for, not something you have to do a lot of things in order to receive. And so we have to understand Wesley's definition of grace. Here's how he describes it in the sermon. He describes grace like this. He says, It is all the blessings of God, all the blessings which God hath bestowed upon man are of his mere grace, bounty, or favor, his free, undeserved favor, favor altogether, undeserved, man having no claim to the least of his mercy. No, no, notice, notice how many times Wesley uses the terms over and over again. It's undeserved. He uses that term twice. Uh, it is God's favor. It is God's grace given to us we have no claim on this. All of this is at God's initiative. All the blessings which God has bestowed upon us are part of his grace. In fact, Wesley would say that the very act of creation was the result of God's free grace, that he stamps humanity with the image of God. That is the ultimate act of grace. God doesn't have to do that. He can make us a lesser creature 
as it says in Psalm 8, though, he makes us just a little bit lower than the angels, crowns humanity with glory and honor. That's an act of grace. And so human sin, because God's grace is given to us, human sin cannot be atoned for by works. We can't, we can't be good enough to atone for the sin that we do and the sin that we are enslaved by. And so grace is thus God's movement toward us, through which God confers the blessing of salvation. If we're going to be restored to the image of God that was shattered by sin, it's going to have to happen at God's initiative, the same God who had the initiative to create us in the first place. That initiative is what we theologically call grace. And so in this sermon, Wesley asked three key questions. First, he's going to talk about what faith it is through which we are saved. And then he's going to talk about the salvation, which is through faith. And then he's going to answer some objections to this. And so this is a typical pattern in Wesley's sermons, as we have seen. His style is often to begin with what the answer is not before proceeding to his point. He's going to already address the problems that people are going to bring up with the sermon as he preaches it. So what is this faith through which we are saved? Well, again, Wesley begins by talking about what that faith is not. First, he says it's not barely the faith of a heathen, not heathen, not merely moral virtue, justice, mercy, or truth. In other words, to go back to what we talked about in the Almost Christian, which I guess we did last week, we did Free Grace uh, the week before, but in the Almost Christian, he talks about these things being part of the almost Christian, being equal to the faith of a, heath- of a heathen, not merely those particular traits. Secondly, he says it's not the faith of a devil. The faith of a devil for Wesley actually goes beyond the heathen because the devil believes that Jesus is the Christ, but that faith is neither redemptive nor transformative. Even the demons believe and tremble, as it says in the scripture. So it's not the faith of the heathen only, it's not the faith of the devil only, nor is it the faith of the apostles when Christ was on earth. Remember, Wesley says that they were called a faithless generation. And so they, if you take out the death and resurrection of Christ and Pentecost, if you take out the power of the Holy Spirit, Wesley would say that their faith was insufficient. His assumption is you can't be a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit. So until the Holy Spirit comes upon these apostles, they are still sort of almost, they're almost there. They're not altogether there. They're still part of a faithless generation, but it's the Spirit that actually empowers them to carry on the work of Christ, and it's the Spirit that enables them to kind of put all this together and understand it. Uh, we see in the Ascension text, which I'm going to be preaching here in a couple weeks, the the idea that Jesus has to open their minds to the Scriptures. That's sort of the first, the first movement. He opens their minds, but it's the Spirit then that opens them fully to understanding that which is, is happening with Jesus and what it means for them and for the world. And so this is one of the places where Wesleyanism can get off the rails if people misunderstand it. Because Pentecost can be seen by some as a moment of entire sanctification, pushing new birth 
to sanctification. But the problem is that Pentecost is birth, not sanctification. It's not the fullness. The, the apostles receive the Holy Spirit, but it's the beginning of a new thing. And so it's not merely that they've received the Spirit. They now are going to, to be living in that Spirit and growing in that Spirit. And so uh, this is a counter to what uh, Collins calls holiness antinomianism, that people live living under the dominion of sin are not troubled by it because they are not entirely sanctified. In other words, they have, they have heard this word, they have received the, the Holy Spirit, but they recognize that they're not entirely sanctified. They probably never will be. Therefore, they're not too much troubled by sin in this life. But anyone troubled with the ongoing of practice of sin should be troubled about what that means for their salvation. This view is closer to Calvinism, where there's no dominion over sin. And this is one of the dividing lines for Wesleyanism, that we, we actually believe that, that this is power over sin that God's grace actually does work in us to change us from the inside out. That's the idea of entire sanctification. That while we receive the Spirit, Pentecost was that birth, it was not the final act. It was the beginning, the beginning for all of the church, for all people who come to Christ to be liberated from this dominion of sin in this life and that the Holy Spirit is the key actor in helping us to move in that direction, to move toward entire sanctification. We're going to talk more about that as we go through this series, because power over sin is a major part of what Wesley is talking about here. He actually believes the gospel can work, whereas a lot of Christian traditions tend to see the gospel more as a proclamation that we respond to and that it becomes really operative in us fully after we die. Wesley believes it can become operative fully in us in this life. So what is the faith through which we are saved? Well, Wesley says, first, it's faith in Christ. It's faith that is, quote, not barely a speculative, rational thing, a cold, lifeless ascent a train of ideas in the head. Instead, he says, it is a disposition of the heart. Again, moving from a pre-Aldersgate to a post-Aldersgate understanding. What happened at Aldersgate? His heart was strangely warmed. Before he knew it in his head, then his heart becomes strangely warmed at Aldersgate. And that connection between head and heart is really a comprehensive faith of the kind that Wesley wants us to to grab onto. And not only is it of head and heart, it's also uh, a full reliance on Christ. It's allegiance to Christ, as Matthew Bates says in his work. Uh, I highly recommend his book to you, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, that it's not merely uh, a, a, a thought process by which we agree to a series of doctrines, nor is it merely an internal experience. It's a whole orientation of life where we give all of our allegiance to Christ. And so it is a faith that acknowledges Christ's death, Wesley says, quote, as the only sufficient means of redeeming man from death eternal and his resurrection as the, resur- as the restoration of us all to life and immortality, end quote. So 
when Wesley's talking about faith, it is Christ, faith in Christ given for us and faith in Christ living in us. We receive forgiveness of sins, but that forgiveness is activated in us for freedom. That we are not just forgiven of our sins, we're freed from them. That's a salvation for this life, not just the one to come. So what is this salvation? Wesley says it's a present salvation. It's attained on earth. It's salvation from sin. From, he says, original and actual sin, past and present sin of the flesh and of the spirit. So here again, Wesley says we are saved not only from the guilt of sin, which most other Christian theology would would certainly acknowledge, but Wesley goes further and says we're freed from the power of sin. It doesn't have to reign over us. He goes to 1 John a lot, particularly 1 John chapter 3, talking about how there's no sin in believers, um, that, that it gets eradicated in us. That's the idea of entire sanctification. That's what God does in us if we really are leaning into the grace he's given to us. It's transformational. So we're saved from the guilt of past sin. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And so Wesley believes that because of the cross and resurrection, those who receive God's grace offered in Christ have already been forgiven. But that grace must be received. This is the concept of justification, to be made right through God's grace offered through Jesus Christ. So because of the cross, because of the resurrection, we've we've already been given the capacity and given the given the the proclamation of forgiveness of sins. When what Jesus says from the cross may uh, forgive them for they know not what they're doing could be a statement for for all of us. And uh, as as I've heard other, one theologian say, when someone asks him, "When were you saved? What was the date and time you were saved?" He says, "I was saved on a hill outside Jerusalem two thousand years ago." But that grace that it was brought by Christ on the cross, must be received. And when we receive it, that makes us right through God's grace offered in Jesus Christ. We are made right with God. For Wesley, justification is kind of the door to a house. It, it, makes us in, it, it allows us to enter into a new relationship with God and to be restored to the family. But we're not only saved from that, we're also saved or saved from the guilt of past sin, we're also saved from fear. Now, you remember we talked about this in the spirit of bondage and adoption, that those under the spirit of, spirit of bondage, those who are in that legal state, often live in a state of fear. But grace allows us to no longer regard God as a severe master, but as an indulgent father. We're saved from the fear though not from the possibility of falling away from the grace of God. This is another place where Wesleyans and, and Reformed folks tend to get into some arguments is around the possibility of falling away from the grace of God. The grace is a gift that is given, and it ultimately has to be activated and used and responded to. Otherwise, it is cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call it. And so um, I think this is a really important point that we believe God's grace is a gift, but it has to be received. Um, 
John Barclay, uh, who has written a lot, uh, not the Barclay of Barclay's commentaries, but, but John Barclay, the British theologian, has a book out called Paul and the Gift. It's a really important book for understanding what Paul means when he talks about this grace. And Barclay talks about the fact that in the ancient world, grace or gift, the same word, when a gift was received, there was some reciprocity expected. And without that reciprocity, there was a, there was a damage in the relationship. And so we have to think of grace as a gift to us. We don't earn it. It's given to us, but it does call for us to respond with our lives. So we can fall away from that grace if we choose not to activate it in our lives. That would seem to be the case as we read through the scriptures. Here's how Wesley puts it, or I'm sorry, here's how Bonhoeffer puts it in The Cost of Discipleship. I think this is getting at what Wesley's talking about. Here's his quote on cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So it's grace that requires a response. It's costly grace. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to walk that way. And when we walk that way, we begin to discover that grace has an active component in our lives. It does indeed change us. It brings regeneration, new birth, initial sanctification. But if forgiveness only is preached, that's cheap grace. It's not good news. If our nature is not transformed, we'll be committing the same sins over and over again. And so some people think that's the normal Christian life, that we're just doomed to commit the same sins over and over again until we die and we actually come upon this this blissful idea of heaven and, and full salvation. But Wesley believes full salvation is available now, that we can have power over sin now. We're not doomed to be in this cycle. I, I've often used the, the image from professional wrestling, where you get thrown across the ring over and over again during a match, and then you get bounced off the, off the ropes, you come back and get clotheslined. And that happens multiple times through a match. You would think that people would understand that they're not a prisoner of kinetic energy, that you could actually grab the rope and stop. And Wesley says, in effect, that's what grace does for us. It allows us to grab onto the rope. It's a way of saying, no, we don't have to do those things anymore. That Christ can actually work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to overcome that which has enslaved us for so long. God can transform us inwardly so that we can live the life for which we are called. And so that's why Wesley can say, he that is by faith born of God sinneth not, along with 1 John. Habitual sin cannot reign in any that believeth. Willful sin, which is really Wesley's definition of when he has sin, he has willful sin and then those sins that are, that are involuntary. But willful sin his will, why he abideth in faith, it utterly sets against all sin and abhorreth it, abhorreth, abhorreth it <laughs> as a deadly poison. That, that it can change our will. God's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit can change our will. 
that we can, when we abide in faith, we actually can root that sin out of our lives. We can identify it. We can understand it. We can understand those sinful desires and instead replace those desires with the holy and perfect will of God. We can't do this on our own, of course. I want to make sure that's clear. We do that the more we grow in the power of the Holy Spirit, the more we grow in sanctification, the more we grow in grace. And so Thomas Chalmers, that Presbyterian pastor from the 19th century, talks about the way that we deal with sin is through the expulsive power of a new affection. And so Wesley essentially says, the more we are filled with the holy and perfect will of God, the more we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the more we are filled with an awareness of God's grace, the less room there is for sin in our lives. Now, we do continue, Wesley would say, to sin by infirmities, involuntary sins, mistakes, but they have no concurrence of the will. They're not willful. Wesley's really concerned here about willful sin. And so if that's the definition, if Wesley's talking about willful sin, stuff we do knowingly and purposefully, he says, he that is born of God doth not commit that kind of sin. He does not commit willful sin. And though he cannot say he hath not sinned, yet now he sinneth not. He can choose not to. Here's the quote. This then is the salvation which is through faith, even in the present world, a salvation from sin and the consequences of sin, both often expressed in the word justification. So that he who is then justified or saved by faith is indeed born again and grows thereby until at length he comes unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If we are being transformed into the image of God, into the image of Christ, and Christ lives this life with power over sin, the same power that was in Christ, the same Holy Spirit that was activated in Christ, active in Christ as part of the Trinity, is available to us. That's a powerful realization. We often think that we are less than, and we are on our own, but in the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we have the ability to overcome. So what are the objections to this? You can imagine there are quite a few, because this sounds really weird to a lot of Christians. Even a lot of Wesleyans don't actually understand this is part of our doctrine. This is an important part of this. We can move toward holiness in this life. And so Wesley addresses these potential questions. First, the first question, doesn't this preach against holiness and good works? If we're receiving this free grace, should we, should we not be too concerned about growing in this holiness and good works? Well, Wesley would say only if by faith we mean something separate from these things. Faith necessarily produces all good works and holiness. We read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, though not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But we forget verse 10, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to do. So faith necessarily, grace necessarily produces something in us. It produces a change, inward and outward, good works and holiness. And so the second objection is, doesn't this idea of salvation by grace through faith void the law? Does it void the commandments? Well, Wesley says that those who preach not faith actually do so, because grace through faith 
calls all to that living, Wesley says, whereby the righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in them. In other words, if you're living this grace that God has given, if you're being transformed into into people who are righteous, set right with God, you will do the things of the law and you'll do them not from an external obligation or out of fear, but you'll do them because that's the way your heart and your life is now oriented. And so those who trust in the blood of Christ use all the ordinances he has appointed to do good works and have the same mind that was in Christ. We'll talk more about that when we get to the sermon on the means of grace. But we live this way. We orient our lives around the commandments of God. We take seriously what it says we were reading in our morning prayer, Psalm 119, all about meditating on God's law. We take it seriously because it becomes the desire of our heart to do so. That's that transformation from the inside out. And so does this faith lead to pride is another question that Wesley asks. Well, perhaps accidentally. You know, if we get to a point in our lives where we are saying, look, I have power over sin. I've received no temptations. I am completely free from all of that. Then we we are not being authentic. Um, we have to not lean into that kind of pride. Um, some people who would say, well, I'm entirely sanctified. I don't worry about any of that stuff. Or as I heard someone say to me once, I graduated from Sunday school. I know everything there is to need, need to know. I live, I live my life perfectly, and I don't need anyone to tell me otherwise. So uh, why do we need all this confession and all that kind of stuff? It doesn't really ap- apply to me. Well, that in and of itself is a sin you know, to, to say I'm so prideful. And it, and it says that I am the one who's in control of all of this. But remember what Wesley says here. This grace comes from God, not from us. And so we live in a constant state of gratitude, but also a constant state of vigilance because we're leaning more and more into the Holy Spirit, leaning more and more into this grace. That's what enables us to overcome sin. We can never do it on our own. So there's no reason for us to have pride around that. And lastly, uh, Wesley asked the question, does this encourage sin? If we receive this grace freely, can we say, well, we can sin all the more? This is the same thing Paul says, I I believe, at the beginning of Romans 6. Since we have received this grace, um, should we sin all the more so that grace may increase? And, And Paul says, of course, may it never be. Of course not. But some will. And many will continue in sin so that grace may abound. But Wesley says their blood is on their own head. Because the goodness of God ought to lead to repentance, and it will for those who are sincere of heart. We will change authentically if we really believe this this doctrine, if we take it into our lives, if it becomes part of not only our head but our heart, it will lead us to desire what God desires for us. Um, will those who believe that they are saved by works be driven to despair? Well, Wesley says the righteousness which is of faith cannot be given him while he trusts in that which is of the law. Um, so there's no reason to, to despair if we, are, if we are given that salvation by grace. And otherwise, if we believe we're saved by our works, we'll recognize we're never going to get to that point. We're never going to be good enough. Now, this is an uncomfortable doctrine. It's an uncomfortable doctrine 
particularly for those who are steeped in sin. Because if you're steeped in sin, Wesley would say, you know, you're, and you're, you're a Christian, you're, you're an almost Christian, because you are, you are not living the freedom and grace and power of the Spirit that God has offered to you. If you're comfortable with that, if you're comfortable with the idea that I can just continue to sin because I'm covered by grace, there's something wrong. If you're comfortable with that, you need to get uncomfortable. And it's discomfort, Wesley says, that leads to repentance. It's that holy discontent with the way things are. Kind of that Romans 7 way of thinking. And you can argue with scholars about what Paul means in Romans 7 when he talks about the fact that I do the thing that I don't want to do. Is that the normal state of affairs? Should we be comfortable with that? Both Paul and Wesley would say no. That discomfort should lead us to want something more. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And so uh, one of the other objections that Wesley deals with is salvation by faith ought not to be preached as the first doctrine, at least not to all. And Wesley says, the Holy Spirit says otherwise. No one should be accepted from hearing this good news. Wesley preaches this good news to condemned prisoners because he realizes that God is the one who's bringing the initiative. God is the one who is bringing this grace, and no one is too far gone. Remember the thieves on the cross or the revolutionaries who are on the cross. Uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That powerful Good Friday image, that is the grace that is being offered to us. And so Wesley says, nothing but this can effectually prevent the increase of Romish delusion in us. Salvation by faith strikes at the root and all fall at once where this is established. This is the doctrine that can transform people from the inside out. And that's why it's a doctrine that often gets pushed back on because it's dangerous to the enemy. Here's what Wesley says. For this reason, the adversary so rages whenever salvation by faith is declared to the world. For this reason did he stir up earth and hell to destroy those who first preached it. And for the same reason, knowing that faith alone could overturn the foundations of his kingdom, did he call forth all his forces and employ all his arts of lie and calumny to affright that glorious champion of the Lord of hosts, Martin Luther, from reviving it. So Wesley's very much part of the stream of the Reformation here, but he says the reason that this doctrine is so dangerous to those who want to preach against it, or particularly dangerous to Satan, who would love to keep us stuck in a works righteousness, is that we begin to believe that we'll never be good enough. We begin to believe that we can't have power over sin. And Wesley says if we believe in salvation by faith, we believe in salvation by grace, if we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we will indeed shake the gates of hell because we will no longer be under the chains of the enemy and his, and his forces of sin and death. So this is salvation to the uttermost, and it's a salvation that we need to be proclaiming and, and one that we need to be living. To not merely see sin as a kind of inevitable thing that we're just going to do over and over again, but rather to see the power of the gospel as power over sin. 
So this is a bedrock Protestant doctrine, but Wesley sees us not merely being saved from sin through forgiveness, but that forgiveness and salvation also gives us power over sin itself, willful sin. So this is one of the concepts that makes the Wesleyan movement distinctive in Protestantism. And I think it's one that we need to to really recapture and to preach and to, to live out. One of the reasons why the early Methodist movement was so focused on band meetings was a way of rooting that sin out. It was a way of confessing it and and moving beyond it and encouraging one another to that, to spur one another on to perfection. I just interviewed uh, Kevin Watson this past week for another podcast that I do. He has a new book coming out called Perfect Love, which is all about entire sanctification. And he talks about this a lot in the book. The book comes out in May. I highly recommend it to you. I'm going to try to get Kevin on the podcast so that we can talk about this in more detail. But I really encourage you to go back and read this sermon, Salvation by Faith, to begin to ponder what this idea of power over sin, because of what God has done for us, uh, might mean in your own life and how you might turn more toward the expulsive power of a new affection, the expulsive power of God's grace and the Holy Spirit given to us as a gift. Thanks for joining me on this edition of Wednesdays with Wesley. We'll see you back here next week with another sermon. Have a great Holy Week.